You're listening to the Nashville Libri Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. To receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at NashvilleLibreeConference.com. This episode features Philip Johnston. Philip lives in Nashville now, but he's served at both the branches in Southborough and in England. The lecture is entitled Pursuing Freedom in a Culture of Choice. My name is Philip Johnston. Um, I am a former worker at Labrie Fellowship in Massachusetts and in England. I was most recently with English Labrie, which is this beautiful manor house south of London in the county of Hampshire. And I worked there for two and a half years with a wonderful staff of people from all around the world. Um, very dear people who I, I really, really love, and um, one who shouldn't wear sunglasses in the Christmas picture. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, so I worked there for two and a half years. While there, I met a Nashvillian named Krista, um, and we eventually had to make the decision whether uh, after we got married we would live in England or here in Music City, and we chose here. So I moved to Nashville a little over a year ago, and we got married. And then all of a sudden, a few months ago, a little baby came along to join us. Uh, Her name is Nora. You've probably seen her stroll around here with uh, my wife and uh, my wife's mother and my mother, too. So it's been wonderful to have this year or so in Nashville and to start a new phase of life. Yeah, and to speak at this conference. So, yeah, I want to jump right into today's topic. I hope you got a handout. They're sitting right over there. Uh, I've given the the, um, lecture today a expanded title since you saw it in your um, in the conference materials. The title of today's talk is "The Perfect Lie of Liberty: Pursuing Freedom in a Culture of Choice." And I want to open our time together by describing a person you might have met before. Don't worry, it's a stock photo. Um, This is a single guy in his mid to late 30s. He is charming, and he's fun to be around. He is a decent-looking guy. Ladies, yes? He's a decent-looking guy with a stable job that he landed in his mid-20s. He owns a house, and he even knows how to take care of himself. Um, he has no pets, but he does have a few house plants um, that, he's, that he's working on. Um, and I, have a, I have a friend who calls these guys high-end bachelors. Um, so what is our high-end bachelor's name today? Can we just throw out a name? Um, what's his name? Chad. Chad? Chad. Okay. Is there anyone actually named Chad in this room right now? Okay. All right. So this is Chad. And um, unlike some guys who fit the high-end bachelor description, Chad just can't seem to settle down. 
he dates around, sometimes even for lengthy stretches, but each of his girlfriends walks away from the relationship with the same complaint. And what is that complaint? He just can't commit. Um, if you start talking about the future or about marriage or about children, um, Chad, simply, he gets a lump in his throat, a tightness in his stomach, and a coldness in his feet. Um, that is just what happens to him. And part of him wants to settle down, and that's the sad thing. Um, he, but another part of him is deeply fearful of how a commitment like marriage would change his life. What if he gets into the relationship and he realizes that he's made a mistake? What if he settles down with that girl from church, but then he meets a totally charming Ms. Wright at a networking mixer the next week? Uh, he's grown accustomed to the freedom that he's had as a single man, and wouldn't marriage take some of that freedom away, leaving him without some of the options that he's grown so accustomed to as a single man? So Chad has a case of what? FOMO. He also has commitment, commitment phobia. We would call it commitment phobia. Um, and we either laugh or groan at Chad's plight, uh, but I've come to think that there is a little Chad in each of us here in 2019. Um, we live in a world of options, with more choices available to us than most of our human ancestors could ever dream of. Commitment phobia arises in us when we are faced with this vast ocean of options in front of us, and we resist committing for fear that our choice will not be as satisfying as we hoped it would be, and for fear that we won't be able to change course after the choice is made. We are afraid that our commitments will restrain and inhibit us from living the lives that we want. And this dynamic arises for us in many different places. Uh, you've finally chosen something to watch on Netflix, but you're bored by the first 10 minutes. The show or movie isn't as good as entertaining as you hoped it would be. You start to feel a little anxious, so you change course and you pick something else. But the second thing isn't as interesting as you thought it would be either, and ten minutes later you ditch it for another thing. Why commit to an initially unsatisfying show when you could be watching something so much better? We spoke of Chad the serial dater, but there's also the young married couple who are faced with the choice of whether or not they're going to have children. They know that children bring joy, hypothetically, but they see all their sleep-deprived friends who now go to ballet and gymnastics instead of concerts and movies. Once you have kids, you can't change course, and do we really want this? What if it's not as good as we hoped it would be? So say that someone is looking for a church community to call their own, but they don't want to get too deeply involved in the church's life. After all, what if they change their mind or the church changes in unexpected ways? That would be a problem. And it's safer not to get too involved, to hedge your bets and be able to slip out to another church um, and to do that unnoticed. So you see how this dynamic arises from? Have you felt this in your life at all? Um, we could multiply examples. But what if I told you, I'm going to, uh, that, this, <laughs> um, that this general feeling of commitment phobia in the air is a relatively new phenomenon in human history? People have not always been plagued with this anxiety. In fact, many of our human ancestors would look at us in our state of commitment phobia 
and they would, they would look at us and they would shake their heads and they'd insist that by wanting to keep our options open all the time and always be free to choose something else, we are actually enslaving ourselves and resisting the call of true freedom. That's what they would say. And it's hard for us to understand this because between their time and our time, a revolution has taken place in Western culture as to what freedom actually means, as to what that word means. And this revolution, I'm convinced, is the root of our commitment phobia. It's a revolution that has taken place slowly and under the surface of our culture for the past 300 years, but that now has a formative effect on every single aspect of our lives, the way we think, the way we make choices, and the way we love other people. And my goal for our time together this afternoon is to explore our modern concept of freedom or liberty and to compare and contrast it with an older definition of liberty that was universal in Western culture until about 300 years ago. So that's a lot of work, but I've tried to, um, I've tried to distill some things to make them a bit easier to understand. Uh, by way of summary, and on your handout, here are the two concepts of freedom. The late modern freedom, our, our time, we are in late modernity. Freedom is the capacity to act upon our strongest desires and change the course of our lives when those desires shift. That's the idea of freedom that's at work in our society. But pre-modern freedom, before 300 years ago, and in many other places in the world today, freedom is the learned ability to master our desires and aim our lives at what is good. Can you hear the difference there? And the, the core difference between these two definitions is the divorce of freedom from, the, uh, from goodness. So in this old concept of freedom, you were free to the extent that your life participated in what was good. That was seen as freedom. But now, it's different than that. And I want to explore these differences. You see in those two definitions, we're talking about desire and we're talking about aims. And so those are the two headings that I want to look at today. The desires that drive us and the aims that liberate us. So, there is no better summary of our modern concept of freedom than that given by Supreme, the former Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy in the opening words of a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. And this is what he said. It's on your handout. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. I hope you're up to the task. Um, in other words, freedom or liberty is the capacity for self-definition and self-fulfillment. Modern freedom is essentially negative freedom. It is freedom from outside constraint. This was mentioned this morning in the Q&A um, in Rob's session. So here is the narrative. Here's how this works. This idea of freedom says that human beings are individuals with desires and dreams. To be free is to be unconstrained by any force outside of yourself when it comes to living into and actualizing your desires and your dreams. No established authority, no culture or tradition 
no prior commitments that you've made, and not even the limitations of nature should shackle human potential and desire. Liberty is the ability of the individual to do, to do whatever they like, as long as nobody gets, gets hurt. And until the obstacles for the fulfillment of desire are removed, the person is not free. Does this sound familiar to you at all? It's kind of like a familiar story. So this narrative works for us on both a macro and a micro level, a big level and a small personal level. And the macro level is the political one. And I want to start there. Depending on their political affiliation, people are likely to emphasize this concept of freedom in dis different spheres of life. So the political right, what is the Republican Party, what is sometimes called conservatism, pursues self-fulfillment in economic choices and acts. They tend to emphasize how people should be free to pursue their desires when it comes to the acquisition of property and economic power. Free markets, free people. Free markets, free people. Taxation and government regulation is a barrier to freedom. And this is one reason why, back in February, the Republicans roared with applause at the State of the Union address when President Trump said, tonight we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. And they erupted with applause. Hands off my money and hands off my property. Now the political left, Democrats, what we sometimes call progressives, pursues self-fulfillment as well, but not in the economic sphere. They do it when it comes to personal choices and acts. They tend to emphasize how people should be free to pursue their desires in the areas of sexual identity and expression, the definition of family, and the beginning and end of life. These are realms of free personal choice, they would say. Legislation regarding free expression in these private matters is a barrier to freedom. And this is why presidential candidate Kamala Harris got rounds of applause from her fellow Democrats when she tweeted during the State of the Union address in February, politicians should not tell women what to do with their bodies. Hands off my body and what I choose to do with it. But President Trump and Kamala Harris are one and the same in their convictions regarding what freedom is. They just emphasize it in different ways. Whether we're talking about what I do with my property or what I do with my body, self-fulfillment remains at the center. And restraint in those areas, whether it's about economic power or about personal autonomy, restraint is a burden that cannot be borne. The odds are good that President Trump wouldn't raise much concern about a landowner choosing to strip mine thousands of acres of his property in order to make money from cheap energy, even if that involves destroying the natural landscape and polluting water sources. After all, a person's property is their raw material for economic fulfillment. The odds are also good that Kamala Harris wouldn't raise much concern about a person choosing to undergo gender reassignment surgery in order to fashion a new identity for themselves, even if that involves the destructive mutilation of their body and its subjection to chemical manipulation for the rest of their life. 
After all, a person's body is their raw material for personal fulfillment. You see how these ideas are similar? They just get played out in different places. Both strip mining and gender reassignment surgery aim at the same goal. And that is, as one scholar says, the expansion of the sphere of liberation in which the individual can best pursue his or her preferred lifestyle. That's how our, our political debates are, really share a similar premise about what freedom is, just emphasized in different ways. So that's the big level in the political realm. But this idea of freedom also has, a, it has personal implications for us, and I want to call this the micro level. So within the narrative of freedom as self-fulfillment, we are given three organizing assumptions oh, upon which to found our lives. One, nobody or nothing should be able to stand in the way of me getting what I want. Two, if they or it does, it is a form of oppression. Three, if I can't get what I want, I can't be happy. And the result is that most of us have a hard time imagining a vision of a good life that does not involve getting what we want all the time. Um, and that does not involve having our strongest desires fulfilled. Because freedom is the capacity for self-fulfillment. That's, what we, that's in the air that we breathe in in our culture. Freedom is the capacity for self-fulfillment. Now, if you were at Ben Kaiser's lecture yesterday, or if you've read or listened to Tim Keller, you've heard this example uh, about Elsa from Frozen. That this is the exact idea that she sings in her song, Let It Go, in the movie. And she says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now, if Elsa were to present her case for how she wants to live in the presence of the great religious sages and wisdom teachers throughout history, they would hear her case and perhaps understand what she's getting at a little bit in those first few lines, but they would be utterly confused and mystified by that final word. They would, ex they would not expect to hear, I'm free, at the, end of that, in, at the end of that line. They would expect to hear, I'm a slave. They would tell her that she, has bit, that she has bitten down on a very seductive lie. And that is what I want to call the perfect lie of modern liberty. That insists that freedom is the capacity for self-fulfillment. This is because for much of history, moving on to B, what I'm going to call real freedom... For much of history, freedom or liberty was defined not as the ability to fulfill your strongest desires, but as the learned capacity to distinguish between your, between your destructive desires and your good desires and to consciously choose the good. That was what it meant to be free. Liberty was not the capacity for, for self-fulfillment, but it was the ability to live a life of self-mastery. This sounds very strange to us. It sounds like a very odd concept. And from the vantage that's because from the vantage point of our culture in 2019, when we try to envision the good life, we have one category for that. The good life is being my authentic self. That's what it means to be satisfied. But if you presented this idea to this round table of people throughout history, philosophers, wisdom teachers, 
they would look at you at your and at our talk about the authentic self and they'd just say, which self do you mean? <laughs> Human beings are a jumble of conflicted desires that are constantly subject to change. You wake up every morning with new feelings. You have a bunch of authentic selves. Which one do you want to be? This is because they had two categories for human desire. They would talk about our strong desire and our deep desire. Our strongest desires are the base animalistic urges that we have for self-gratification. I want what I want when I want it. But our deepest desire is for something more and for some kind of higher life that's above that, above that animal nature. So Aristotle defined this higher life as the life of virtue. And the virtues for Aristotle were justice, magnanimity, courage, temperance, friendship, honorableness. These do not come from our base animalistic urges. Jesus and the New Testament writers describe this higher life as a life of love, which is made manifest in the world through the fruit of the Spirit. And though the biblical writers and these philosophers like Aristotle wouldn't agree on all the details of what freedom looks like and how to achieve it, all of them acknowledged that there is a, there's a hierarchy of desires within people and that some of those desires are deeply destructive. And they were able to distinguish between strong desire and deep desire. And with this understanding, freedom was not just the condition in which we have free choice. That's not freedom to them. It's the condition where we choose rightly. Freedom is making the right choice, and it's aiming our human agency at a life of virtue or at a life of love in the imitation of Jesus. Freedom is not found in having the ability to do whatever I want to do but in being the kind of person who doesn't have to do what I want to do. Freedom is not found in having the ability to do whatever I want to do, but in being the kind of person who doesn't have to do whatever I want to do. The most extreme example of this that everyone understands is the addict. What does the addict most want to do? Real question. Yes, take their drug of choice. They want to have another drink, to take another hit, to have another sexual encounter, to check their social media likes one more time. Their strongest desires have locked them into this continual cycle and vortex of want, where it truly seems like they've lost the choice of whether or not to obey their urges. That's what addiction is. So the alcoholic, with plenty of money and access to an open liquor store, in a purely negative sense under our modern definition, he's free. Uh, Nothing is interfering with him getting exactly what he wants. But in reality, in the real world, he is a slave. He is profoundly unfree. True freedom, the ancients and biblical writers would say, is being able to distinguish between which desires are good and which ones are harmful and constantly aiming that desire at what is good. In other words, freedom is participation in goodness. Freedom is participation in goodness. 
So the question then is how do we become free under this definition? And the answers that the ancients would give, would be, would, they would say, through being educated and living in accordance with habits, practices, rituals, social conventions, and moral codes that enable us to give attention to the things that matter most and then find true freedom. Christianity teaches that true freedom comes from being educated in the way of Jesus and by gladly submitting to his teaching and his word. This is the path to true freedom, and we'll talk more about that later. But more broadly, over the course of Western history, this education meant studying the cumulative wisdom of the ages and coming to know and love the proper goals for freedom. And this was the purpose of the liberal arts. Mm-hmm. Like the meaning of liberal is, is libertas in Latin, freedom. It was education for freedom. How many of you had a liberal arts education and never heard that? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, education was not valued because it paved the way for an economically high paying career. It was valued because it trained a person to be free. It trained them in what freedom was. And through studying the texts of history, they would read about hard-won lessons throughout time of what people learned about what it means to be a free person. And they could learn the shape of a good life, and they could aim their life toward it. And the perspective was that anything less than this would keep people enslaved within the prison of conflicting desire because they didn't know what goodness was. And participating in goodness is what it means to be free. So the question becomes, what happens to a culture when we neglect the hard-won lessons of the past in pursuit of a freedom that's rooted in the fulfillment of our strongest desires? In short, you see a culture in which immediate gratification becomes the name of the game in all spheres of life. This is the organizing idea behind a truly amazing book um, called Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen. He is, teaches political philosophy at um, Notre Dame. This is a newer edition um, with a new preface. It's on sale downstairs, and you should all buy the three copies that are available. <laughs> it, it is one of the best books I've ever read, and it is so helpful in understanding where we are. Um, by liberalism in that title, Deneen does not mean the partisan left. He does not mean the Democrats or the progressives. He means the political philosophy that places the individual person and their ability to make up and pursue their own vision of the good life at the very center of things. The individual person, their ability to define what is good and to live according to it at the center of things. The unfettered choice of individuals is paramount in liberalism. And this, Deneen says, is the operating system of the Western world. It's just how it works. And this is what he said. Um, this is what he says. I should say first that he, this is a philosophy that started to develop, to develop 300 years ago with guys like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke in England. Um, but then it became very prominent in the American founding. And it's become kind of the, it, it, the thing that we believe without ever being taught it as Americans. Liberty means no one's stopping me from choosing what I want. And we've moved into a place where the original ideas of liberalism, which came from guys who would say they were Christians, have been shorn of all, it's been shorn of all its Christian content. 
and it's been totally secularized, secularized. And it leaves us with the world that we have today, where just my ability to choose what I want is the essence of what it means to be a, live a good life. And this is what Deneen said that's on your handout. This is a quote from him. In this world of unrestrained desire, gratitude to the past and obligations to the future are replaced by a nearly universal pursuit of immediate gratification. Culture, rather than imparting the wisdom and experience of the past so as to cultivate virtues of self-restraint and civility, becomes synonymous with hedonic titillation, visceral crudeness, and distraction, all oriented toward promoting consumption, appetite, and detachment. As a result, superficially self-maximizing, socially destructive behaviors begin to dominate society. It's academic speak, but he, he's got a lot of good ideas there. So practically, how do you think this works out? How do you think this affects our perception of children? How do you think it, per, it, it um, affects how we view children? They're a barrier to the good life. Because what did they do? They constrain me from getting what I want. So the only child worth having is the child that I choose. Which is why it's such so painful for many people when they find out about unplanned pregnancy. Because I didn't make that choice. How do you think it affects our view of nature, of the world that we've been given by God? There's no, need, there's no need to take care of it for future generations. Exactly. We have economic imperatives right now. We need to, we need to get things from the world. It's and a resource at our disposal. Yes, it, it is all a resource at our disposal, and we can do whatever we want with it. How do you think it um, affects the economic realm and how we do business? Relationships aren't really worth your time unless they're going to get you something. Yes. Profit. Yeah, all relationships are just based on what I can get from them. Um, quick profit is maximized, and we neglect things like trusteeship um, or, in, or investment. Uh, how do you think it affects our... Yeah. The quarterly report becomes king instead of long-term planning? Yes, we think in terms of short periods of economic profit rather than long-term goals. How do you think it affects our view of marriage? Self-fulfillment accessory that you maintain as long as it's useful to your self-actualization. Marriage is a good as long as it's helping me achieve what I want from my life. And if it's not... I need to go find myself. I need to go find myself in another in another sphere. How do you think it? I mean, going before marriage, how do you think it affects uh, dating and relationships when you're when you're thinking about the, through this lens? It's whatever makes you feel good, and then move on to the next. I need to find someone who makes me feel good, and the moment that they stop making me feel good, we're done. Everybody yeah. becomes a narcissist. That can also happen. <laughs> um, so you see how these, I, I mean, he, these ideas sound very academic, but you see how they play out in our real life. It, it really does affect the way we view every aspect of our life. Um, so yeah, that we have these two definitions of freedom that are at work in our minds and hearts. 
this first one, that is freedom is the capacity for self-fulfillment, to act upon our strongest desires and change the course of our lives when those desires shift. But then we've talked about this older, truer definition of freedom, I would argue, which is the learned ability to master our desires and aim our lives at what is good. So I want to move on to talking about the aims that liberate us in the second part of this talk. And I want to begin with a quote from a very odd and, oh, a very odd and interesting person, not that one, um, uh, a very odd and interesting person named Simone Weil. And she said in the 20th century, true liberty is not defined by a relationship between desire and its satisfaction, but by a relationship between thought and action. And I want to explain this um, throughout the rest of the talk. This is the practical bit of the talk, as practical as I can get. Um, So to help us understand this, I want us to talk about the relationship between two ideas, and that is action and potential, and form and freedom. First, action and potential. We spoke earlier about how commitment of phobia arises within us when we fear that the choice we, that, uh, that we make will limit our potential for choosing something else, something different. So in the modern view of freedom, my potential to choose from the options before me is the most important thing. Potential seems more important than action. Get that? Potential seems more important than action. To illustrate, how many of you would say that I have the potential to be a prize-winning bodybuilder? <coughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so here in 2019, if, if, if I went out and said that, um, it would be common to hear, of course you have the potential. You have so much potential. You can be anything that you want to be. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. If you can dream it, you can be it. Just go. <laughs> We place a high value on potential. We talk about it all the time. We maximize our value to choose what we want and to get what we want from the array of options in front of us. Potential is more interesting to us than action because freedom is the state where no one's stopping me from choosing. But the ancient or classical mind would look at this very differently. We say that potential is more important than action, but they believe the opposite. They said action was more important than potential. In fact, it is action that liberates potential. So how would this work? Upon hearing about my desire to be a bodybuilder, the ancient person would take a good look at my life, and he would observe that when I freelance work from home every day, I never go to the gym, and that I sometimes eat salt and vinegar kettle chips and Haribo gummy bears at 11 a.m. But I still have the potential to be a bodybuilder, don't I? Well, they would say, sure, in a way. You have more potential to be a bodybuilder than a hamster does. (laughs) Nothing is preventing you from giving it a shot. But since you rarely go to the gym, your potential for being a bodybuilder is pretty unreal. You haven't actually acted toward that goal. Sure, you've got potential, but right now it is impotent potential. It is impotent potential. But if you were to take action, 
if you were to master your desires for kettle chips and gummy bears and submit yourself to all the constraints necessary to become a bodybuilder, your potential would actually start to become real. It would strengthen. Instead of impotent potential, you'd start to have real potential, and then after that, true possibilities would be open to you. You, you would lose your freedom to eat kettle chips and gummy bears. Sorry about that. But you would be able to do the things that bodybuilders want to do. Uh, <laughs> uh, you could do deadlifts. You could climb walls. You could enter competition. Yeah, you could do that. And isn't that actually what you want, they would say? Here in the modern world, we tend to glory in our potential for choice and the wide array of things in front of us. And we think that this is freedom. I'm free to choose what I want, and no one is stopping me. And this is the lie of modern liberty. This is a lie. It's a very compelling lie. This, this older definition of freedom, the classical mind, would look at us and say that all this possibility that you have is not really interesting. It's uninteresting. Sitting there and looking at all the possibilities is you wallowing in impotent potential. To the extent that you fail to choose something and commit yourself to it, you are not a free person. You are not actually free. Action is far more important than potential. And true potential only begins to emerge after you act. We do not become free by dwelling in possibility, but by making contact with something real. We do not become free by dwelling in possibility, but by making contact with something real. Now, the lie of liberty is the belief that potential is more important than action. It tends to get constantly reinforced in us because we live in a society awash in images. Images have a strange and alluring power to make us feel like we've made contact with something real when we actually have it at all. What does this look like, you might ask? Has anybody listened to the podcast Hidden Brain from NPR? Yeah. There was an episode early this year that explored the phenomenon of people watching hours of online videos of other people doing things that they would like to do in their life. Sound familiar to anyone? Uh, participating in sports, building things, eating exotic food, all of this stuff. And one guy on this podcast says, I catch myself spending hours a week watching climbing videos on Instagram. I've even built my own climbing wall, but I never use it. <laughs> Another woman says, my husband watches a Navy SEAL talk about discipline and hard work while eating cereal at 11 p.m. <laughs> The podcast host speaks to a guy named John who has built a wood shop in his garage for recreational use on the evenings and the weekends. But John spends more time on the couch watching how-to videos on YouTube. A few videos about the barn door that he wants to build eventually turns into videos about cleaning engines, how to build decks, and how to renovate houses until John is caught in the swirling vortex of impotent potential. And he says this, on a weekday, I'll watch an average of two hours, but on a weekend, if I don't have a lot going on, I'll watch four or five hours easily in a day. So there's this social psychologist they talked to at the University of Chicago named Ed O'Brien, and he conducted a variety of experiments that revealed that repeatedly watching others can foster an illusion of skill acquisition. 
And one of these experiments involved moonwalking, Michael Jackson's <laughs> famous dance. And so the psychologist had participants watch the same instructional dance video either once or 20 times. Mm-hmm. And the participants who watched the video 20 times were confident that they would be the best performers and that they would totally nail the dance and be really good at it, but they actually performed no better than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Their confidence was so high. And this led the psychologist to say, and this is part of his academic study, it's a line from it, watching seems intimately connected to our perceptions that we're learning. Watching seems intimately connected to our perceptions that we're learning. And one of his key takeaways from the experiments, it sounds so basic, but because of the world we live in, we have to do academic studies to figure this stuff out again. One of the takeaways was the importance of a longer-term mindset when it comes to learning. Uh, And that's because we are are addicted to instant gratification and instant results. And it's an addiction that is exacerbated by our image-driven society. Watching videos of someone moonwalking and thinking that you can do it yourself is the very definition of impotent potential. But the remarkable thing about the image is that it is able to trick us into believing that we've actually taken action. Isn't that amazing? Even as much action as the expert on the screen. All the while, we are losing the time to practice that skill and to actually have it strengthen in us. But there is hope. In another experiment, the psychologist Ed O'Brien had three groups of volunteers watch a short video of someone juggling with bowling pins and then told everyone that they would be asked to juggle too. He gave each group different kinds of information about juggling, like the weight and dimensions of a bowling pin. But in one group, he had volunteers actually hold a bowling pin for one minute. They didn't juggle it, they just held it in their hands. And it turned out that giving people a real taste of what juggling is like made them better better at predicting how hard juggling would actually be. All someone needed, he said, was that one minute of direct access into the first step of juggling. Action liberates potential. The people who held the bowling pins moved from the prison of impotent potential into the freedom of action. And in trading the video simulation of reality for a real bowling pin in their hand, they made contact with something real. They made contact with, the, with reality and came to know, even in the smallest way, what the liberty, the freedom of juggling would be like. Action that physically reaches out for the real is infinitely more valuable than impotent potential. All the impotent potential in the world. One action that reaches out for something real. Because freedom does not come from dwelling in possibility, but making contact with reality. That's the first idea, action and potential. And the second one I want to talk about, the last one, is form and freedom. What is a form? A form is a set of limitations that contain and cultivate freedom. A set of limitations that contain and cultivate freedom. If we forsake the form, we we abandon the real potential that it is designed to liberate. The classic example of this is the fish in the water. The water is the form that liberates the fish's freedom and its potential 
to swim and flourish as a creature of the sea. Some hypothetical fish might desire to be free from the limitations of water. Don't tell me that I can't be a land fish. Damn it. But there's no real freedom for the fish outside the ocean. Like, the fish has no freedom there. Just a few minutes of flopping, and then he's toast. So, second example. If a pianist yearns to play Bach's Goldberg, Goldberg variations, she must submit to the form that liberates that freedom. And what is that form? Practice. Practice. Days, practice. months, years of practice. practice. Under the authority of a teacher who knows more about Bach and the piano than she does. And after stepping into this form, this musician will be limited in her capacity to choose other things. She will miss out on a few get-togethers with friends. She will likely be ignorant of the recent stuff that's happened on social media and the latest Netflix shows. But each of these sacrifices is a tiny liberation of her freedom to play the piano and to play Bach's Goldberg Variations and to bring delight and joy to everyone who listens to her. Poetry is also like this. Um, a poem must be made of words. That's a limitation. Um, it cannot be about everything. And as Wendell Berry says, if it is unspeakable or unmusical, it is not poetry. <laughs> and the poet must submit to these limitations. And they must submit to the editors who will place their knowledgeable eye on the poem before it goes to publication. And unless the poet is writing in free verse, they must also step into a certain poetic form, a 14-line sonnet, a five-line limerick, or a, a three-phrase haiku. This is one of my favorite modern poets. His name is Malcolm Geit. He is um, a priest and poet in Cambridge in the UK. And he writes amazing sonnets, 14 lines in sonnet form, which is three quatrains, lines of three, and a couplet at the end, two lines. That is a form when he, that he steps into. And he's written this wonderful, well, it's actually hit or miss, but the hits are wonderful, um, <laughs> a book of poems called Parable and Paradox, Sonnets on the Saying of Jesus. As a minister, he could take a, a, a saying of Jesus and write a long sermon about it and teach the ideas. But he chooses, he does that, but he also chooses to write sonnets. So here is him stepping into the sonnet form um, to communicate Jesus' words when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. This is what Malcolm Guide says. Wherever someone knows that they are lost and cries for help to find the way back home, and turns toward their father's house at last. You are their way before they know your name. Wherever someone searches for the truth and tests each easy answer in its turn, stressing the question, pressing to the pith, you are the truth they cannot yet discern. Wherever someone sorrows over death, yet seems to glimpse the gate beyond the grave, the living spirit in the dying breath. You are the life 
within the life they love. You come to us before we ask or pray till you become our life, our truth, our way. See how form liberates beauty. Form In poetry, form liberates beauty. I want to talk about, as we draw to a close, I want us to return uh, to Chad, our <laughs> high-end bachelor. Chad is resisting entering the form of marriage. In doing so, he's a bit like a wannabe bodybuilder who is frustrated by the fact that he must go to the gym and lift weights in order to get ripped. Won't this form limit his freedom? And the anxiety behind this question is ever-present for all of us, whether we are choosing a spouse, a vacation destination, a church community, or even the next book that we're going to read. Forms limit our capacity to choose. Entering the form means not entering into another one. And in an age riddled with FOMO, with the fear of missing out, the first thing we think about is how much we are going to miss, how much we're going to miss out on by choosing one thing instead of another. But forms do not exist to limit freedom. Forms do not exist to limit freedom. Just as exercise yields strength and practice cultivates musicianship, the purpose of a form is to liberate the bounty of the unexpected. The purpose of form is to liberate the bounty of the unexpected. And this is the deep wisdom of a little-known essay that I love uh, called Poetry and Marriage, The Use of Old Forms by Wendell Berry, the great farmer poet from Kentucky. There were two copies available of this book down at the book table, but they're gone. Did any of you get them? Huh, weird. Did you say that again, the purpose of form? Yeah. Um, the purpose of form is to liberate the bounty of the unexpected. I'm going to talk about that. Um, it's in a book called Standing by Words, this essay. It's really beautiful. He wrote it in 1982. So Barry says in this essay, like poetry, marriage has a form. And that form is the mutual promise of a man and a woman to live together, to love and help each other in mutual fidelity until death. That's the form. And this is the technical aspect of the form. You hear that? It's kind of the technicalities. This is what it is. If you want to write the boundaries down, this is what marriage is. But like all forms, marriage is more than this list of boundaries. It's so much more than that. And the boundaries are there to serve what Barry says is an opening, a generosity toward possibility at the center of the form. So every form has these two aspects. There is the technical aspect and the generous aspect. And the generosity at the heart of the form cannot be received without at first submitting to the form's technical requirements. The two are inseparable. And Barry says that to forsake the way, the form, to forsake the way is to forsake the possibility. So in marriage, the technical aspect of the form tells the couple that when they have their first big fight, bolting for the door is not an option. That's just how the form works. It's not, when you make vows, it's not an option to leave. That's a boundary. 
And it means that rather than cut and run, this couple is going to need to get creative, just like a poet who's trying to write within a sonnet form. With patience and with forbearance and with the hard-won wisdom of other couples, this couple must trust that the generous aspect of the form of marriage will one day unfurl before them and that unexpected goodness and unknown gifts are possible for their relationship. Fidelity to the form means fidelity to each other and it drives the couple beyond what they have the poor power to expect in the aftermath of their clash, as Barry says. And the form drives them into hope. Like a gardener, each day of fidelity to one's spouse is another day to till the soil of hope that fresh flowers will spring up from the ground of love. Growth is not automatic. Growth is never guaranteed. But if fruitfulness were instantaneous and always sure, hope would be unnecessary. It would be an unnecessary virtue. And this is what Barry writes. I put it on your handout. A certain awesome futurity then, like an asp- a, a orientation toward the future, is the inescapable condition of word giving in the marriage vows, a couple's giving of their word to one another. For we speak into no future that we know, much less into one that we desire, but into one that is unknown. But that it is unknown requires us to be generous toward it and requires our generosity to be full and unconditional. The unknown is the mercy and it may be the redemption of the known. The unknown is the mercy, and it may be the redemption of the known. So the dogged hope of marriage is that after days, years, and months of self-giving committed love, even through the most (coughs) difficult times, a union unimaginable on the couple's wedding day will begin to come in place in their life. And this is a matter of faith. It is a matter of faith. And there are many days in which it is hard to have that faith. But Barry says the faith is that by staying, and only by staying, we will learn something of the truth. That the truth is good to know. And that it is always both different and larger than we thought. That different and larger truth is what a world of options and perpetual fear of missing out constantly prevents us from seeing. It prevents us from seeing that commitment, dogged commitment to people, to places, to practices in our life, these commitments that close us off from other options, these are the things that actually liberate us. These are the things that our commitments liberate us. And to receive previously unexpected goodness into our life, into our personal life, and into our communal life with one another. If we want to be free, we have to commit.
I titled this talk, um, The Perfect Lie of Liberty. Does that line sound familiar to anyone? Do you hear an echo from anywhere? Any of you Bible people hear an echo anywhere? Perfect law of liberty? Aha, yes. So in the epistle of James, in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the first chapter, um, you find this passage. Think action and potential when I read this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James writes about the perfect law of liberty, which sounds very strange to us. But he's most likely referring to the great commandment of Jesus, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is not an easy task. This is not an easy task. And it will grind against our strongest desires for self-gratification almost at every point. Because it means listening to Jesus when he says, if anyone would come after me, let them take up their cross and deny themselves and follow me. Self-gratification is not an option with Jesus. And with the modern definition of freedom controlling our hearts, we will always think that Jesus is a killjoy and that he's out to constrain us and keep us from the life that we want. But with the real definition of freedom in mind that I've been talking about, we realize that when we hear the perfect law of liberty, when we read the New Testament, and about taking up a cross, when Jesus talks about, Jesus is inviting us into the form of discipleship to him. And with these limiting statements, he is beckoning us to step into the ultimate circle of our freedom the bounded circle of our freedom. The place that liberates us to be the persons that he has made us to be. As with every form, stepping into the circle of Christ's freedom will bring with it a set of limitations. It has a technical aspect, as Wendell Berry would say. Our money and our possessions and our property no longer truly belong to us. Our bodies are no longer ours to do whatever we want with them. We no longer have the option of holding a grudge against our enemies, refusing to forgive them, and acting violently against them when they threaten us. This is the form. But we will be free, since with every step of obedience, we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, the God-man, who lost his freedom when he left the realms of unapproachable light and took upon himself all the limitations of our human nature so that we might be freed from slavery to sin and death. It is for freedom that he has set us free. Yes, sir.
that is what I would like to share with you today. I think about this topic, it explains so much to me about the world we live in, and uh, because of the nature of this topic, we stand on the precipice of every controversial issue there is. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's let's talk. Any questions? Yeah. Um, so this topic is really interesting to me in particular. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. It's interesting to me because like, I come from a world of entrepreneurship. I run my own business. Yeah. So I work independently, which naturally lends me a lot of freedom. Yes. Um, I'm really curious, though, in particular about the way you were using the words possibility and yeah. potential. And yeah. what you see as the differences and similarities between those. Because it seemed like you were saying like, potential, it's pretty much just like nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and then the way you put it in this framework with uh, Wendell Berry was like, oh, the seed of this thing is actually possibility. And it yeah. seemed like there, there were some similarities, but I also yeah. want to hear about your thoughts on the differences. I, yeah, I have not um, sought out to define in my mind like the differences between these two, and I think I'm using them kind of interchangeably. Okay. So, like, potential. Potential, I guess, is the thing that I have, and the possibilities are things that are out there. So I guess I, I, the modern view of freedom would say that I have potential to choose from all my possibilities. But the, this older definition of freedom would say that I only have true potential when I reach out and grab one and commit myself to it. And then a true a non-illusory possibility will begin to emerge. So yeah. But that's something worth thinking about. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I guess that I would... I mean, and this is just a technicality. It's not really, like, a deep, meaningful... It's not like, oh, I'm really wrestling with this personally. It's mm -hmm. just more of, like, trying to think about the best way to to use the way you define these terms. Like, I was thinking of, like, okay, you showed Arnold Schwarzenegger. Before he looked like that, did he have potential? Mm -hmm. Or was he... Did he have impotent potential? Yeah. Um, and so, I guess, I mean, like... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I more guess like, like a with the definition. Yeah, I guess we're, we're given, e each of us, I think we have natural giftings that, have, that are part of us. And I'm sure, uh, I don't know if I have the same potential as Arnold Schwarzenegger did before he got ripped. Um, <laughs> I'm guessing I don't. Um, I guess one way to look at it might be like, you're in a context, right? So like, yeah. you said you're a freelance writer, and, so yeah. like, and then you have a family, and you have kids, and yeah. so they're a child. So yeah. there's a context around you, whereas like before Arnold got ripped or whatever, yeah. he probably didn't have all those things. Like yeah. He probably wasn't a freelance writer. Yeah. So I guess maybe that's one, one way of looking at it, is like looking at the context that potentially informs your potential. And yeah, I think that's really important because our... Like with the modern view of freedom, it's very self-focused. Like I want what I want, and I want to get it. But I think it, with a, if we're seeing the real view of freedom and a Christian view of it, I should be looking at how my about how my life can be oriented toward the best of those around me, and not just me. So the modern view would have us say, "What do you want, and who do you want to be? Act to become that from all the possibilities around you." And the Christian view would say you have a first calling which is to love God and to love your neighbor how can you do that with the gifts that you've been given and given that how can you reach out for something real that is both good for um, that is good for the people around you and not just you 
Um, and that, like, the answers to that question are going to be different for every person. But I think a truly Christian view of all this always bears in mind where the gifts that God has given you, but not just that, like the place where God has put you and the people around you too. Um, and if you don't think about the people around you, I don't think it's a very Christian thing at all, and it can become very selfish. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah your question. Say more about... Um this idea in parenthood. I, I like what you said about it in marriage, but I'm I'm a toddler and it's summer break for our preschool and so I'm feeling the lack of freedom and yeah um, and my kind of desires shaping instead and I'm wondering like what what the idea of action liberating potential looks like in that situation where you really don't have a lot of freedom for a while but Yeah. Big limitations or even like a someone who has a special needs child who their yeah. should be tied to it yeah, I want to be careful answering that question because I don't know the details of your situation. Um, but I, I, w- I would say that it's in, in like the time that we live in, it's very common to step into, and I'm not saying this is you, I'm just saying this is a broad thing. It's very common to step into marriage with just the husband and the wife. We just have our relationship in view. Like We are starting a thing that is us. Um, and we move into that, and our expectations are that we are going to be fulfilled together. And a lot of people, because of the world we live in, and because of our access to birth control very easily and all that stuff, we don't go into marriage thinking that children are the fruit of that relationship. And so we begin to think of children as primarily a choice that we make when we want it. And so under that assumption... We begin, to, we begin to think that children are always something that are going to foil my plans for my life <laughs> um, unless I choose them. And I think that can, that can affect us in uh, unconscious ways sometimes. And like the, the, choice, to, the choice to be married um, in the way that God has set things up is the choice to have a family. And um, under the fall, that is difficult for some people, more people than others. Um, but I think we need to, to start seeing that um, parenthood and the privilege that is is a, is a sphere of freedom. And like the, the practicing of the piano, like there, there are things that I'm not going to be able to do when I'm a, when I'm a parent. I re- my daughter is four months old, so I don't have much experience with this yet, but I have realized it. I love going to movies and haven't gone to one in five months. Um, but I am devoting myself to her and we are devoting ourselves to her and we are losing some things but we're gaining her um, and it's not just her in, in like in, in this, this day um, in relation to my um, feelings about what I want it is my relationship to her when she is 20, 30 and 40 which is a long view and I think like, the, like our culture does not encourage taking the long view on things. And I'm not saying you think this way. I'm saying that it's very easy to think this way in our culture of instant gratification. I, uh, it, it gets it messes with our we breathe it in and it messes with our minds. And so I guess I would say like the long view is really important. Like your your being with your children this summer is contributing to the people that they are going to be when they're 20, 30, and 40. And their 
sense looking back in their life of your love for them in those times um, and how they will how they will know and love you and it, it, it is it is so disorienting to know that what that looks like in the present is a messy house with dishes always in the sink and not being able to go to some of the social things that we wanted to do but the long view tells us that there are unknown gifts in the future and the requirement for those is our commitment in the present and that is always that is that is a hard word all the time <laughs> um, and I just find myself constantly having to remind myself of it so I guess that would be my answer <laughs> And that is, that is the parenting relationship that your your faithfulness to them constrains you, but liberates them, and that is exactly the pattern of Jesus. That his willingness to die for us constrained him and took him down to death, but it was the requirement for our freedom, and that's what it means to be like him. Doug McKelvey's book on his liturgy on changing babies' diapers. Yes. I have I have read that. I I bought my wife I bought my wife a print of that and need to get it framed. (laughs) So if you if you look in the book Every Moment Holy, um, there's a liturgy for changing of diapers, and then there's a second one, and it says because there are always more diapers to be changed (laughs) or something like that. So yeah. Verse is good too. Yeah. (laughs) Any other? Yeah. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about like the freedom of choosing? between good things. Yeah. Like, I am often overwhelmed by the goodness I see in a lot of things and I want and I want to commit I want to commit to all these good things which is impossible. Yeah. Um or good relationships even, like friendships. Yeah. Um and so yeah, can you speak to... Yeah, I, to, like to be a human being in God's world means that we are limited yeah. and we're not like Him. Um, whereas God can commit Himself to all that is good all the time because He is totally infinite. He hasn't made us that way. And that means that like, part of honoring Him is not committing to everything. <laughs> um, and that's a, that, is a, that is also a sacrifice um, at times too. So yeah, I... I grieve right now that so I've lived in a bunch of places in my life and I have friends in all of those in all of those places and I grieve my inability to commit to them all but part of my limitation is that I live I live in one place and I have certain responsibilities here and that I just can't do it and that makes me sad but I don't think that sadness is wrong and that leads me to bring them to the Lord in prayer much more Um, so I think that we can commit all of our capabilities to some things but the things that stand outside of that circle of our limitation we can take to the Lord in prayer and we can say Lord please tend to these things because I I can't well actually that prayer is, is like assuming that I I could take care of them all um, if I were able. But Lord, please tend to these things. I care about them. Um, And I think you do too. So I guess that would be my answer. Yeah. Grace. Yeah, I just have one comment and one question. On the parenting thing, 
So I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And it is true that my action liberates their potential, but it also does liberate my potential. So I look back, I look back even just on four years, and I see, like, the depth of my patience, like, virtues of my character are just astronomically higher today than they were four years ago. And that is only because of little actions of limitation and living within the form of parenting. So it does, yeah, it's liberating to both of us, which is kind of cool. It's like, wow, God has used this little person and my service to this person to change me yeah. to be more free. And in the unexpected person. patience. Very unexpected. Um, But my question for you is um, a little bit of a different road. Um, I have encountered some resistance to these ideas, like the perfect law of liberty idea, really all of this, in my church. So, and I don't know if this is unique to Southern Christianity or whatever, but there is a resistance to anything um, that sounds like obligation because, God forbid, we'd be obligated, it's all grace. That's legalism. So the idea that there might be certain things we ought to do, even the word ought, there is almost an allergy to it. So I wondered if you experienced that or and or advice, or other type of advice, of how to have those conversations in ways that are helpful and not just angsty. There's a strand of teaching that is kind of rogue and twisted Lutheranism mm-hmm. exactly. that that comes from Martin, uh, doesn't come from Martin Luther, but it is it was a wicked stepchild of his teaching um, that interprets the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, these things that should frame all of our lives as Christians, as statements of all the things that we can't do. I listened to a whole sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount once which is all about how Jesus is telling you all the things that you can't do. And it was literally demoralizing. <laughs> um, it, it, because like Jesus, is, the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount are telling us the form of our discipleship. And of course we can't do them without the help of the Holy Spirit, but they are obligations. <laughs> but like the payoff of, of, of this is to see like the obligations are not there solely to limit you. The obligations are the technical aspect of the form. And there is a certain technicality there. But there is a generosity, an openness to the the goodness of real life at the center of them. And I think our our history, many of our histories as Protestants, is that we come from a Reformation tradition that rightfully um, um, attacked a church that was abusing its authority to tell people what they should do and emphasize the grace of God. Um, but that can get abused sometimes, and that heritage can get abused to, to make it just seem like you have no moral agency and you just need to trust Jesus for everything. You do need to trust Jesus for everything. But one of the things that Jesus does for each one of us is restores our capacity to act as image bearers of God mm-hmm. and, to, and to make us into new creations who can act beautifully in the world with the help of the Spirit. And so, yeah, I get really, I get really frustrated with that sometimes because it, it, like, it, it takes away a God-given capacity to live a fruitful life when you just say um, the Sermon on the Mount or something like that is just telling you what you can't do. So trust Jesus for everything. 
um, it's, it's trust Jesus for everything is right, but there's more there than that. So, yeah. It is time um, to go. It is 3.17, but book recommendations. Um, so here are the poems by Malcolm Geith. There's one more copy. You can come up and take this. Please pay for it down there if you take it. Um, Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen. It's framed in the language of political theory, but it's not terribly difficult. Um, it is one of the most eye-opening books I've ever read. So do check it out. When, when a book is embraced by the most conservative uh, Catholic bishops and Christian thinkers in America, but also bears the endorsement of Barack Obama, um, <laughs> that it offers cogent insights into the loss of meaning and community that many of us feel. I don't agree with many of its solutions, but the diagnosis is right. My ears perk up. Like, if people from both sides are reading this and saying, whoa, this is interesting, I, I, I take notice. Um, one of the best books that you can read on just a lot of the issues that have been talked about at this conference is Making Sense of God by Tim Keller. There's a great chapter on freedom in here. And the central part of this book um, um, is called Religion is More Than You Think. And it goes through um, some common objections that Christianity gives you a meaning that suffering can't take from you. A satisfaction that not that is not based on circumstances. Um, he asked the question, "Why can't I be free to live as I see fit, as long as I don't harm anyone?" Which is the ideas that we explore today. The problem of the of the self, an identity that doesn't crush you or exclude others, and a particular the problem of morals, and then a justice that does not create new oppressors. Um, so this is a wonderful resource, and if you're a nerd. This book, uh, these are the notes, and they are amazing. Um, One more. This book called In Search of the Common Good, on the little cards down there, I wrote a blurb for this because it's wonderful. And the the discussion that flows from this is how can we live a, a good life and seek the common good of all people? Um, and he's really trying to answer this. And he gives a really good, Jake Metter gives a really good diagnosis of the problem. But I think his solutions are really beautiful, too. He focuses on um, Sabbath and rest. He focuses on the meaning of good work, um, which is very much connected to our relationships in the world. And then he talks about our um, connection to the natural world and the world that God has made as well. Um, so it's a really, really wonderful book, and I highly recommend it. And I won't tell you about anything else because that's enough. Um, thank you for coming. And let me pray for us before we go because this is the conference is almost over and we need help um, to live according to all these things as we go out into the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son has come to us in order to give us the gift of freedom. We thank you that he is alive right now and that his spirit is with all of those who trust in him. And we pray that you would enliven us by that spirit to be um, agents of goodness in the world, um, bringing forth fruit that is good for our neighbors and our families and our friends and loving them and loving you in ways that um, bring forth unexpected goodness into our lives and theirs. Thank you for the privilege of being a human being. And thank you for Jesus who restores us to that calling. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. 
For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.